Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning, as we continue our consideration of the Gospel of Matthew, and particularly uh, his Advent portion of the book, which is appropriate to the Advent season, we will be looking at the latter part of Matthew chapter 1 and then in through chapter 2. Now, the interesting thing about the account of the birth of Jesus is that it's very much like other birth stories in this sense, that the story of Jesus' birth contains comparatively little about baby Jesus himself. After all, Jesus entered into this world like all babies, that is, in a helpless state. And so everything had to be done for him, which is another wonder of the incarnation, that God enters the world as a baby who must be fed, who must be protected constantly, lest he die. A baby who is going to wet himself, like all other babies. None of this was any kind of impediment to God becoming one of us to save the world. And we looked at the incarnation last week. But most of the story about uh, the birth of Jesus and the days following is about those who cared for Jesus, especially his parents, Mary and Joseph. Now Luke presents the, the account mostly through the eyes of Mary and also through her relatives, Zacharias and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. But Matthew presents the story through the eyes of Joseph. Jesus' adoptive father. But Luke and Matthew both, um, by telling us about Mary or Elizabeth or Zacharias or about Matthew, are doing a lot more than just telling us about those people or about what happened. By telling us about them, Matthew and Luke are really telling us a lot about God. They're telling us a lot about those who love and serve God. And in fact, they're telling us a lot about Jesus himself. So this morning, we want to consider what Matthew tells us through the story of Joseph. And so we're going to begin reading at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. These are the same verses we read last week about the Incarnation. Except instead of focusing on the incarnation and its significance, we're going to be focusing on the part that's telling us about Matthew and what he, I mean, about Joseph and what he had to do. And then we're going to read um, chapter 2, again, not to try to completely exegete that passage. Next week, we will look at again at Matthew chapter 2, looking at more of the theological aspects of it. But we want to look at particularly those parts of chapter 2, which focus on the narrative, and specifically the narrative concerning uh, Joseph. So with that in mind, let's read together Matthew chapter 1, beginning at 18 
and then we'll go down through chapter 2. This is the Word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. As his mother Mary was betrothed, after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise. Take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will uh, seek to kill, uh, will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, 
in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose and took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now let us pray. God our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these great events through which you changed the history of the world forever. And we thank you that you're still continuing to change the world through these events. We thank you that you have come into our lives, that you have changed us. We pray, Lord, that you would bring these very familiar words to us again, as though we had never heard them before. Bring them by your Spirit in all their fullness and all your majesty and all the wonder that is here, that it would have a transforming effect upon us to the praise of the glory of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, as you can see, Matthew presents this whole narrative through the eyes of Joseph. There's a lot here about Joseph. Now, it's interesting that popular history has not been kind to Joseph at all. In typical accounts and retellings of the Christmas story, Joseph is very little mentioned. Uh, in typical paintings of the nativity, Joseph is usually standing off to the side so Mary and child can have the spotlight. In medieval plays, Joseph was very often a comic kind of a figure, uh, offering a often a doddering old man uh, with less significance even than the shepherds who would come to see the child. But it's a commentary on how often we come to God's Word with some kind of a preconceived notion and take out of it that which we want. Because Joseph, as actually presented in the Scriptures, is a very, very different person. He's certainly not a comic figure. Matthew shows us the man whom out of all the men who have ever lived, whom God chose to raise his only begotten son. Have you ever considered it from that point of view? I mean, God makes all things. He's made all of us. He designed us individually. And you think about the fact that out of all the men, and there have been a lot of great and godly men who have lived down through history, God chose one to raise his only begotten son, this man, Joseph. Joseph, um, God raised him up. We initially see him protecting Mary and the baby, and we know that Jesus came up in his household. Joseph is expressly stated to be a just man in verse 19. He is a just man. That's another way of saying he's a righteous man. And he proves himself to be a model, disciple, husband. He proves himself to be a picture of godly masculine love. He proves himself, in fact, to be a type of Christ himself. 
Well, when we first see Joseph in this narrative, we see him as a very stunned man. He's betrothed to Mary, and here she is pregnant. Now, you have to remember that under the Jewish uh, system of marriage, once the couple was engaged or betrothed, for either of them to be unfaithful at that point, it was no longer fornication, it was adultery. Okay? So the, it was just as though they were married. They were married in every way. In fact, the ceremony, the real ceremony of the oath-taking and everything uh, under the Jewish system occurred at the time of the betrothal. The only thing that really remained was for them to come together to consummate the marriage and for the great uh, wedding feast to happen. And under the Jewish system, those two points would be separated sometimes by a month or two months, uh, sometimes up to six months. But this is a situation where Mary has obviously been adult, guilty of adultery. I mean, there is no other explanation so it would seem. So Mary's been unfaithful. It would be obvious to any young man that he, she doesn't really love him. She's betrayed her oath and her loyalty to Joseph. And if Joseph now takes her as his wife, everybody will conclude that the child is his, which means that the disgrace will come upon him and his family. We have to remember they lived in a very different world. In our culture today, all kinds of things happen, all kinds of infidelities and of, of every sort, and you know, there, there's no real social consequences to it. It was very different in the Jewish society of that day. There were very, very real and lasting consequences to uh, this type of action. And so, again, for Joseph to marry her at this point then means it's his child, which means he's the one who's really guilty of, of this wrong, and the disgrace comes upon not only him, but his whole family. So there really was only one thing to do, and that is to put Mary away or to divorce her, because again, they're betrothed, and that's what it is going to take. Now, if Joseph handled this officially, if he made a formal accusation against her, then Mary would be convicted and quite possibly stoned. On the other hand, if Joseph, as the victim, made no official accusation, then there would be no trial, there would be no conviction, and there would be no formal judicial punishment. That's exactly what happens in John chapter 8 with the woman caught in adultery with the men uh, bring the woman and accuse her before Jesus. When Jesus says, well, he knows this is a kangaroo court. He knows this. He, the woman's guilty, but he knows this whole thing is not about any uh, protection of righteousness. This is all about trying to use it as a, as a setup uh, against him. And when he says, let he who is without sin uh, cast the first stone and all the men end up leaving, he asks the woman, who accuses you? Does anyone accuse you? And she says, no, my Lord. And so Jesus says, neither do I accuse you, go and sin no more. There's no formal accusation, and therefore the apparatus of the law does not come into play. Now, that's what Joseph wants to do. He, does, he wants to put her away quietly. He does not want to make any formal accusation against her. 
Now, Mary, of course, is still going to suffer lasting consequences. Joseph cannot spare her from that. But he did want to spare her from the full judicial consequences. And it is this, we need to know, it is this that shows Joseph to be a just man. A just man. It doesn't say merciful. It's not what shows him to be a merciful man. It's what shows him to be a just man. It's what shows him to be a righteous man. And this should arrest us in our typical conceptions of biblical righteousness because it's so hard for us to get out of our mind. We think somebody being righteous, we think letter of the law, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, we always have to remember that eye for eye and tooth for tooth was not the platform on which the whole judicial law was based. It was a very specific law which applied only in certain very specific crimes like maiming. You know, it was not something applied across the board. It was, it was a very specific thing. But nevertheless, we think of righteous as meaning letter of the law, no compassion, no mercy. That's just not the biblical concept of justice or righteousness. The biblical concept of justice or righteousness means that somebody gives all the love and the loyalty that they are supposed to give in the confines of a particular relationship. To the point, to be righteous toward God means to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. To be righteous toward another person means to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, that, that's what the biblical concept of righteousness or justice is. And that's why we find throughout the scriptures mercy being included within justice. Consider Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 9. This is what God says to his people through the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, execute true justice. Okay, that's the basic command. He's saying to his people, be truly just. Execute true justice, and this is how you do it. Show mercy and compassion, every one to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor, and let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. That's how you execute true justice or righteousness scripturally. So he says, show mercy. Now this word mercy, uh, that's probably not the best translation for the Hebrew word. The word is chesed which is a very fundamental word. What it really means is, is covenant righteousness. It means covenant loyalty, covenant devotion. It means real, true love, like you see in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is all about hesed and what that means and what that looks like in the real world. And so the whole book of Ruth is full of people under the most difficult of circumstances being loyal to one another, being committed to one another, uh, sacrificing themselves uh, on behalf of one another. That's what the whole book is about. So that's what mercy is. That's what hesed is, okay? And then when he says show compassion, that's the word racham, which does mean compassion, but it means a real, true, deep compassion. In fact, sometimes the word is translated deeply. So it means a very deep uh, compassion. This is what Jesus had in mind when he confronted the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 
And he accused them of being hypocrites. And he says, I'll give you an example of your hypocrisy. You pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. What are the weightier matters of the law? What is the law really about? He says it's about this, justice and mercy and faith. Now, the word he uses for justice is the word crisis, from which we get crisis. And what it really means is a decision or a judgment, like in a a court case. But what he's saying there about the weightier matters of the law, justice, he's saying true decision-making, biblical decision-making, And then he goes on to add, what is biblical decision-making based on? It's based on mercy, that is, compassion or pity. And finally, he says, faith or faithfulness. It's the word pistis, which is the Greek word for faith or faithfulness. Uh, We we tend to distinguish those, but the Bible really doesn't. I mean, what, what does faithful mean? Faithful means full of faith. Faithful means the kind of life that shows one to be full of faith. So it's just the other side of the same coin from faith. So we see Jesus is really picking up what uh, God has said in his law and in the prophets all the way through. And that's what's in view here when it says that because of the way Joseph wanted to deal with Mary, which was to not make a formal accusation, to not subject her to that, although he was in full rights to do so. He was in full rights to do so. The fact that he did not want to do that, but wanted to put her away quietly to spare her as much consequences as he could, this is what showed Joseph to be a just man. Like Jesus would do later on, Joseph declines to publicly accuse a woman caught in adultery, even though he does condemn the sin. Jesus declined to uh, condemn the woman because her accusers were as guilty as she was. And when he asked for an innocent accuser to stand forward, there was no one. They all left and abandoned the cause. Joseph, on the other hand, was innocent. He would not have been a guilty accuser. He would have been an innocent accuser. And he was himself the victim. So we see this idea of covenant, devotion, love, and so forth. He cannot spare her. He's not saying it's not sin. But he is definitely not looking for a pound of flesh. And we next see the angel of the Lord appearing to Joseph in a dream and telling him not to fear, but to take Mary as his wife because the child she carries is from the Holy Spirit, in verse 20. So Mary will bear a son, and Joseph is to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this is to fulfill the word of the Lord to Isaiah, that the virgin would conceive and bear a son, who shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in in this context... We begin to see several things about Joseph. We begin to see several things about how the sovereign God has raised this man up, how he uses this man, and what he teaches us through this man. One of the things we see is that Joseph is a new Joseph. 
In other words, he is a counterpart who reflects the very famous Old Testament, Joseph. As with the Old Testament Joseph, God appears to this Joseph in dreams. We have three different times that God appears to him in a dream, just as he appeared to the Old Testament Joseph in dreams. And he uses him to protect and to provide for his people. God used Joseph, sending him to Egypt to protect and provide for his people Israel. And God uses this Joseph now going into Egypt to protect and provide for the true Israel whom we have represented in Jesus in particular with Mary being like a a picture of the faithful remnant from whom the Messiah has come. As in the Old Testament, God sends Joseph to Egypt to provide sanctuary from death. And like his Old Testament namesake, Joseph shows himself to be very resourceful, although without the power and position of the Old Testament Joseph. The New Testament Joseph repeatedly must uproot his family, move to a strange locale, and provide for them without any extended family or support structure uh, being present. In our modern world, particularly in America, we just move all over the place for all kinds of reasons. You know, new job, move east coast, west coast, people move all over the place. It was not so in the ancient world. Um, you, a lot more dangerous, and safety was to be found by staying with your people. And Joseph here is not just moving around Judea, where he would be around still the support structure of the Jewish community in general. He's moving to another country. He's moving to a pagan country. He's moving to Egypt. Then he has to to move back, and then he gets diverted uh, from Bethlehem to go over in uh, to. Nazareth, another region. And each time you think about what's involved in uprooting and moving. I don't know if any of you have, once you have a family, you have children, I don't know if any of you have experienced like a big, a big move. When um, my wife and I had the opportunity to move to Boise from Florida, um, we prayed about it and then we decided, okay, let's do this. Let's, let's take this opportunity. And then I remember we would just lay awake at night, both of us staring at the ceiling, you know. And you, you asleep? Nope. You, <laughs> no. Just thinking about the momentousness of what we had done. We're going to move five kids and all this stuff, 2,500 miles to Idaho. It's just, it's just like, look, that's something you talk about doing. You don't actually do it. You know, you say, oh, boy, it would be cool to move to Idaho. You don't do that. That's crazy, but it it involved a lot. So here, Joseph has to move, and he has to set up, and he has to provide for his family. The next time that we um, see uh, Joseph, we also see that he is not just a reflection of the Old Testament Joseph. We also see that he is a type of Christ himself. Just as all the prophets and the great kings of the Old Testament were types of Christ, the Old Testament Joseph was one of the main types of Christ in the New Testament. Uh, But we see that this Joseph also is a type of Christ. Again and again, Joseph must trust God and act immediately 
in order to save his bride and the child. He's aroused from sleep by his dream with the angel, and he acts right away to take Mary to himself. Now, we need to consider this carefully, because if he delayed in taking her to himself as his wife, then that's going to subject her to increasing public ridicule and condemnation. So Joseph ends her shame, but he doesn't just end her shame. The only way he could end her shame is by bringing it on himself. Again, by taking her as his wife, now everyone will naturally conclude that the child and the sin is his. Those are the two options. It goes on Mary, it goes on Joseph. God says, take Mary as your wife to yourself, and Joseph does so. And this is the same way that Christ saves us, by taking our sin and our disgrace upon himself. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, it says in Isaiah 53. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So this was not, once, once God told Joseph uh, through the angel that, look, th- this child is of the Holy Spirit. She has not been unfaithful. It's not like all the ramifications get cleared up. There's still going to be public disgrace and shame. Joseph ends hers by taking it on himself, and this is all by the will of God. The other thing we see with Joseph is that at the front end of this marriage, in addition to all the complications I've already mentioned, there's no taking. There's only giving. A bridegroom wants to rejoice over his young bride. He wants to rejoice over his wife. But Joseph here does not know Mary until after she gives birth to Jesus. Like Jesus, Joseph did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for others. So on the front end of this marriage, there's no taking for Joseph. There's just giving. And we see him doing that without hesitation and without question. Well, what applications can we make from looking at this remarkable account and at this man whom God chose to raise his only begotten son? Well, the first thing is we need to note and to enroll in uh, the Joseph school of discipleship, all of us. Joseph was a man, he was a husband, he was a father, but first and foremost, he was a disciple. And as such, his fundamental disposition of heart was the one that we will later see perfectly in Jesus himself, and that is, not my will, but thy will be done. In that regard, he reflects Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith and really the ultimate disciple of the Father. Joseph, we see, is a man who lived by faith. He did not live by sight. He did not look at his circumstances and go by them. He went by the word of God. He trusted God. He did not lean on his own understanding. He was a man of quick obedience. He did not stare at forbidden fruit. He did not hesitate or waver like Lot and his wife did when God called upon them to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Joseph's orientation was God first, others second, and himself firmly in last place. And this, of course, is the attitude we see perfected in Jesus, where Paul talks about it in Philippians 2. He says, look, when it comes to the Christian life, individually, in your family, in your church family, out there in the world, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Let how much be done? Nothing. Nothing. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, what we see with Joseph is that this doesn't mean that you look weird. It doesn't mean you get a certain kind of haircut. It doesn't mean you dress in a certain kind of way. It doesn't mean you go around moping. It doesn't mean you try to put on some holy affect. You know, this is what a holy person looks like. It doesn't mean any of that because Joseph didn't look that. He's a normal guy. He's an ordinary guy. He's a carpenter. So there's no holy halo hanging over Joseph's head. There's no, nothing about him. You know, I, I watch... Uh, some of the old uh, movies you can see uh, from Hollywood, like uh, uh, The Exodus or the, the Robe, or some of these uh, movies about uh, you know Cecil B. DeMille, uh, and, and a lot of them have have some good stuff in it. But what I've noticed is like if it's a movie and has the character Christ in it, if it has Jesus in it. Whenever Jesus comes onto the scene, the music changes and gets very ethereal, you know, and he looks very different and he looks at people differently and they look at him differently. And so we, we want this concept of holiness, like you hold your mouth a certain way or you look a certain way and these kind of things. None of that was true of Joseph. What true holiness means is that, number one, you simply believe. You believe what God says. And then you act on it. And I'm sure that just, just like we oftentimes don't feel sufficient because of the circumstances that we face, we, we feel like, okay, God is calling us to do a certain thing. He says, tells us to do something in His Word, but then we look at the circumstances around us and then we kind of feel intimidated or overwhelmed. I assure you, Joseph would have had the same feeling you know, take the child and his mother and move to Egypt <laughs> because Herod's going to slaughter the child. Herod's the king. These are tough circumstances. But, you know, we're called upon to look at what God says, to believe what he says, go to God in prayer and say, God, admit what is obvious. I'm not sufficient for this. But I know you're calling me to this, so please give me the strength and the wisdom to carry out what you say because I'm not sufficient, and here goes. And you just go. And that, that's really the essence of humility. That's the essence of holiness. That's the essence of true discipleship. Secondly, I would particularly talk to us as, as men, and, and before I do that, let me point out that we see these same characteristics in Mary. If you read the, the, the narrative in Luke, you see the same characteristics in Mary. Here comes an angel, says you're going to be pregnant. Even though you have not known a man, you're going to be pregnant. You know what everybody's going to think. Uh, but this child is going to be of the Holy Spirit. He's going to save his people from the sins. And uh, uh, the power of the Almighty is going to overshadow you. 
And Mary says, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be done unto me according to your word. Very difficult circumstances. We see the same kind of discipleship in Mary. And we see the same kind of discipleship uh, in Zacharias in, and uh, Elizabeth. So this is not just Joseph. But here we're talking about Joseph. So let me point out here for men in particular uh, that we see a particular masculine version of, of the kind of piety that God calls for. And I think that as men, we should all enroll in Joseph's school of biblical masculinity. Um, there are certain sins, uh, all sins are available to all of us. All sins are, uh, in fact, common to all of us. But there are certain sins that are peculiarly, that we're susceptible to as men. And there's other sin that women tend to be uh, particularly susceptible to. And they're the ones we see showing up in the Garden of Eden. The ones we see with Adam are irresponsibility, laziness, uh, self-indulgence, and therefore those particular sins come very easily to us as men, very naturally to us. Laziness, irresponsibility, self-indulgence. We do not see any of those things in this man Joseph. We see a man who was practiced at saying no to himself for the benefit of others. We see a man who sought responsibility rather than running from it. We see a man who was willing to shoulder the problems and the predicaments and the hardships of those whom God called him to love. Okay, this all goes to the very essence of masculinity in particular. We don't see a passive man. We don't see a weak man. We don't see a squish. Or as I've heard certain young ladies um, who are still waiting for the right man to come along. I hear it sometimes. I hear the word church mouse. I've been told about that. I don't want to marry a church mouse. I've heard that one. Well, he wasn't a church mouse. But he also was not a domineering man. He was not a man who was insecure, who needed to beat his chest to try to prove to himself that he was a man. He was not domineering. We, did, we, show, we see no evidence of him lording things over Mary. We see a man who was at once in the same time, he's strong, he's decisive, he's caring, he's humble, he's thoughtful. We see a man who did not feel sorry for himself. That's something else that really comes easily uh, to us as men. Instead, he willingly sacrificed and he endured hardship for the will of God and for the good of others whom God called him to serve. And so I really think as men, we ought to think about this uh, particularly. We ought to look for those things in ourselves. And if your father, God's, if God's blessed you with a son or with sons, you ought to seek to live out these things in yourself. And you ought to also seek to cultivate them in your sons. Uh, there's probably not a greater need in the church today uh, than for men to begin to show this kind of godliness and piety and to cultivate it in uh, sons. Because the bottom line is, you know, a, a Christian girl who marries uh, Joseph, a guy like Joseph, she's going to be a happy, she's going to be a happy girl. Children who grow up under a Joseph, a man like this, are blessed children. Friends of a Joseph 
are blessed friends. They have a true friend. They have a, tr a friend through thick and thin. And Joseph's uh, churches where Joseph's attend are blessed churches. Because the bottom line is this, whether we're talking about Joseph or Mary or Zacharias or Elizabeth, what God is doing through these ordinary people, and they were ordinary, they were ordinary, God is showing us the kind of disciple through whom he is pleased to work, through whom he is pleased to show himself mighty, through whom he is pleased to do new things. And we see here there's nothing to distinguish them in terms of their education, of their particular talents, of their wealth, and those things. And that is not to say that God is against education, talent, uh, intelligence, uh, wealth, uh, power, and those things. But what God often does is to make a contrast, to show us what's at the real root of the kind of person he's looking for. And so he will eliminate all these other things. He eliminates the wealth, eliminates the power, the prestige. He eliminates any trappings of a really talented person or of a, of a really uh, well-educated person. He eliminates those because he wants to make sure we get what is at the real heart of it. And what is at the real heart of the matter is what we see in Joseph and Mary and Zacharias and Elizabeth, which is faith, humility, obedience, just plain and simple. The, those are the people that God is, is pleased uh, to work through. And the same thing is true today. And I guess as we look at that, I guess that's good news and bad news. The good news is, okay, it's great. We don't have to be, you know, have a certain education or have all this talent. We can all qualify. The bad news is we can also disqualify ourselves by hoping in other attributes that we may have when God is really looking to these. Now, that doesn't mean, okay, no more education. God wants education. He wants us to be well-educated. But at the heart of it, we need to keep coming back to this. Faith, obedience, humility, covenant loyalty to one another, compassion toward one another. These are the kind of things that God really delights in. And when he's pleased to produce them in our midst, and that's what we ought to be praying for, this in me, this in you, this in our whole body, when this, is, when, when this is present by God's grace, God begins to move. He begins to do things that are wonderful. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. <laughs>